0: From the magnificent Midwest, it's the Suzanne Benker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week as we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives on men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. Something is happening in the world of men. A global awakening. A time of rediscovery a rebirth. Men around the world are drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time to redefine what it means to be a man on their terms. Those are the words that encapsulate the mission of Will Spencer, who I met just last month at a conference in Orlando when he interviewed me about my work. I instantly liked Will, and I'm not sure I can put my finger on why. I think what stood out was his authenticity, his intellect, and his entirely unassuming nature. Will is a Stanford graduate, but for some reason downplays this accomplishment and prefers to focus on bettering himself as a man and on helping other men do the same. Anxious to talk further with Will, I invited him on my show for my first official long form interview. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Will Spencer.
1: Hi, Suzanne. It's good to see you.
0: It's so nice to see you again, 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 it's been a few Mm -hmm. weeks for sure. So I kind of explained to everybody in advance who you are and how I met you and, um, why I wanted to have you on because we're so aligned (laughs) with our missions and it's going to be a great conversation. So I'm excited. So let's start with telling people what the renaissance of men is Mm -hmm. and just what, what your mission is and what it's all about.
1: So the renaissance of men, um, I guess you mean the renaissance as opposed to my brand, like what the the actual renaissance of men is. Is that what you mean? Because there's my brand. Actually,
0: I didn't No, I didn't even think of that. Um, I I meant your brand, but you can connect it anyway. Okay,
1: sure. So the renaissance of men as a brand right now is my podcast. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's meant to document. And there's some other projects going on that, that you know about. Um, it's meant to document, I call it the 40 year history of the men's movement. So you and I met at the 21 summit in Orlando, Florida, the 21 summit is part of the manosphere. What's called the manosphere, which many people have heard of, not everybody, but. And we're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So the manosphere is the latest sort of like the leading edge of a 40-year-long movement that actually began back in the 1980s with what was called the mythopoetic men's movement in the book uh, Iron John by Robert Bly, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by um, Moore and Gillette, Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette, Sam Keane, Fire in the Belly. This was the very first stages of when men were starting to feel alienated from American society, by a couple of different factors which we can get into uh, but the two different factors really were the way that men were under attack in american society and women were being elevated so both of those things were going on and the first symptoms of that started to show up in the 1980s with men starting to feel alienated from their society so they, they're like well, what does it mean to be a man now in this changing world and so the book uh, iron john and robert Bly's special which you can see on youtube which is called a gathering of men really helped highlight some of the things that men were going through in society at the time and men retreated to the forests and started doing, you know, various healing practices to kind of recover what it means to be a man after about 30 or 40 years. Well, at that point it was 20 years since the sixties, that movement got shamed out of existence viciously by the mainstream media. There were, and and there was a women's side to it too. Um, Excuse me. There was a book called uh, women who run with the wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, which is a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. That book was also included in the shaming, like how dare you try to determine what it means to be a man and a woman outside of the overarching narrative. So that movement went underground, the mythopoetic men's movement. Then in the 1990s, the late 90s, in the early 2000s, you had the pickup artist movement with the uh, with mystery and, and and the game by Neil Strauss. The pickup artist movement moved into the red pill world, um, and then the red pill became the manosphere, and now the manosphere has evolved into a sovereignty movement. So I identify that that whole process as this 40 year long process, which I call the Renaissance. The this this uh, rebirth of masculinity into American society after essentially depending on how you look at it, it started either in the 1960s or the 1910s or the 1850s, but mm-hmm. basically a 150 year process of men being under attack and recreating themselves in response.
0: And I love, I love that, that you put it all together in that way. Cause that's very, very helpful. Mm. I think for people, I, there are two things I have to mention that I was going to mention later, but made, you just made me think of sure. them now. One is um, your conversation with, or the conversations you've had with, um, uh, with Warren Farrell because back in the days in the 60s let's let's start yep. there with what happened with him because I think that's relevant um and then also where we are today with the manosphere I have um Anthony Johnson coming on after after the break after uh Thanksgiving He's great. um yeah so we're going which is of course how we met through that conference and 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 here g- he and I are going to talk more about that but so I want to focus more on um this I you know obviously your thing Um, and, and how you put that all together, but let's go a little bit more in depth as to what happened in the sixties to where we are now, starting with, with what Warren Farrell experienced.
1: Mm -hmm. So Warren's a fascinating guy. Um, and he, he tells his story uh, on my podcast with him. We talk for just over an hour and there's tons of content with him. He's been on Jordan Peterson's show a couple of times as well. Uh, but Warren Farrell was a, was a very famous male feminist. Uh, and he was a I forget what discipline, maybe he was a sociology researcher uh, at a university getting his PhD and he became a male feminist because I believe at the time there was, there was some cutting edge work to be done there. And so he started hosting a series of, um, Men's, he calls them men's consciousness raising groups around the country. And so in these consciousness raising groups, you know, he was
0: to parallel the women's consciousness raising groups that were going Exactly,
1: exactly, trying to get men to understand the, the feminist perspective. And so he became a member of the National Organization uh, of Women or the National Organization for Women, now, mm-hmm. which was a very prominent, um, a very prominent feminist organization. Feminist yeah. group. Mm-hmm. And, but what started to happen, um, was the feminists started pushing for like no-fault divorce, you know, um, which hadn't really, they didn't call it no-fault divorce at the time, but they started unrestricted divorce, let's say that. And so in the 1970s, some of the first data around that started to come in and they started to see that the children of divorced parents were having uh, massively reduced outcomes in terms of school performance and in terms of uh, depression and overall life satisfaction, that divorce was actively beginning to harm kids. And so, Warren Farrell tells a story where he went to the board of the national organization, we'll say for women, and said, you know, maybe we should back off a bit on this divorce thing because it's starting to affect kids. And uh, the response that he got was, um, well, you know, we can't really do that because of our base. You know, we can't really, our base is asking for this. And so, that's what we're going to give them. And he said, well... Even, even at the expense of kids, even at the expense of children's Mm -hmm. well-being, And they said, yes. And he said, well, I'm going to speak out about this. And what they told him is like, well, you've gotten really rich with all the stuff you've been doing these speaking tours and you've traveled around the world and written all these books. Gosh, it'd be a shame if all that went away and basically threatened him and, and like Mm -hmm. very openly and Warren to his credit said, I'm going to do it anyway. And stood up for what was right, and he wrote the book, um, "The Myth of Male Power." He wrote the, the book, the, "The Why Men Earn More," which debunked the pay gap like 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Why men are the way they are, and most recently, <clears throat> excuse me, most recently, "The Boy Crisis." And "The Boy Crisis" is an excellent book. Mm-hmm. And in my podcast, Warren Warren actually said that he um, he calculated how much making that high integrity decision might have cost him. And he said that he, he worked it out to be somewhere between eight and $35 million to make that decision to speak out the way that he did.
0: Yeah. There's no question about it. And that's how I got with, with him originally. Well, I think the very first time was, was reading the myth of male mm. power, which is just, yeah. I mean, chock full of every comeback you could ever want to have to any feminist argument that exists in the yes. world. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's, that's, it's just remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and yeah, so you have to respect him for for what he did. I I definitely think we he and I differ in that we I think he was naive in thinking that feminism or feminists um as a group, at least the elite feminists, were um were ever on the same side or ever thought that, well, I mean he learned that they weren't, but they never their goal was always different. Mm -hmm. It was never what your, your goal would be or what Warren's was or what mine is ever. They're always the enemy in my, in my opinion. Um, so that was kind of wishful thinking, but anyway, he learned quickly and he, what he's done is, is, is pretty remarkable considering, um, I I always said to him that he doesn't even have a son Mm -hmm. and yet he feels so strongly, um, about um the issues of boys and men which i think is really interesting mm-hmm. because as he always points out and i agree it's really not until a mother or a woman becomes a mother of a son if she does that it really starts to affect her more and she starts to see men mm-hmm. for the first time in a very different That's right.
1: way yeah she gets to begin well
0: yeah. she
1: begins to get the the, the she keep, she has the choice you know, obviously I will never be a mother, but she begins to experience the choice of, um, and Alison Armstrong talks very, very movingly about this. And the phrase that she used, I think this was on her website, that she was dedicatedly trying to carve the man out of the boy. That was the, those, her, her exact words with her son was that she believed that it was her responsibility as a woman and perhaps even as a mother, but certainly she believed it was her responsibility to carve the man out of the boy. And now that's, I mean, And she would even agree that that's, that's, that's pretty rough. You know,
0: I I don't think I knew that. What was her reasoning at the time? Why was she that thinking that
1: that was her perspective that, that women's job are to keep men in their place. And the way that you do that, the way that women do that is through shame. So as you know, in her book, the queen's code, the vow is Mm -hmm. I give up the right to castrate men forever. Right. So this ability, right. Right. This ability of,
0: yeah, no, I thought it all
1: fine. So this ability that women have to shame men, um, to control them Mm -hmm. through shame, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know, that shows up across society. Um, And it also can show up in the mother son relationship where it's like, I got to teach this boy his place now, you know, whether she's conscious of it or not. Um, And of course that creates some destructive outcomes.
0: Well, very much so. And of course you would have had to have been very, um, I think, either traumatized in some way, or conditioned to believe, to even think along those terms, um, from the get go, to to then have that. I mean, like I'm a mother of a son, I just never, ever thought that way. So what separates the one who does from one who doesn't, someone who either, for whatever reason, never had any reason to believe that men were less than, or that men needed to be shamed into whatever. Um, so either you were not acculturated or you didn't have a parent who, who presumably mom, not a dad who somehow instilled that in you. Um, right. Because there are women who don't feel that way well, for sure. For
1: sure. I think, I think what women's quote unquote liberation in the 1960s had a lot of really cascading effects that we don't really understand. So, you know, it was, it was generally pitched as, um, boomer children you know kids who were you know coming of age during that time but i think it actually may have rippled backwards in the generation where uh women who were part of the greatest generation so which will, will be my grandparents may have seen their daughters attaining some amount of liberation and felt that that was some liberation in themselves to begin mistreating mm-hmm. their husbands or something like that to be expressing themselves in new ways and so then it, then it becomes this reinforcing cycle. It's like, Oh, you go girl, you take, you take a piece out of his ass or something yeah, like that. What, and then, yeah. and then it goes backwards. Right. And and it kind of creates this whole general, like suddenly women have all this power over men that they've never really had yep. before. And I think they got a bit, frankly, drunk on it. And, uh, you know,
0: Oh, no question. I mean, that's literally why I do what that's I right. do. Okay. I want to back up a little bit. Well, and read if I, if Please. I could from your site, um, because I think it gets to the heart of who you are and I don't want that to get lost on um, this conversation. Okay. So I'm just going to read it. It's going to take a few minutes and then we'll get back to your, your mission, sure. which is referenced here. You write, hi, I'm Will Spencer and I don't quit. I used to be a mess, 50 pounds overweight, dating a woman, two decades older than me, racked with grief over my mother's sudden death, traumatized from my upbringing and violent bullying in childhood, ashamed of my appearance, plus guilt-ridden for my failings, including being let go from two jobs. Meanwhile, I had big dreams of being a musician and seeing the world while I spent most of my time scrolling through Facebook. I blamed everyone but me. My social commitments are why I can't lose quote, my social commitments are why I can't lose weight. I can't break up with my girlfriend because she'll be sad. Those companies don't appreciate me anyway. I'm not successful in the music scene because they don't get me and so on. Then one day I realized I can't get there from here. I realized I was the one standing in my own way. My own beliefs about myself and the decisions I made as a result were the greatest impediment to my success.
1: Mm.
0: Other men helped me see that. Mm -hmm. After that experience, transforming myself and my life became a daily practice. I exercised lost weight and joined a men's group. I meditated every morning, studied great works of spirituality, and healed my heart in therapy. All of this was done solely in the company of men. And I'm going to come mm-hmm, back to that, so don't mm-hmm. forget that. In less than two years, I turned my life around completely. Within 23 months, I had ended my unfulfilling relationship and began the process of selling everything I owned to fulfill my lifelong dream of traveling around the world. Those years of travel were my own personal hero's journey, my greatest dream, which I completed with honor and wild success. My happiness today is a living testimony to the power of men to transform other men and of our ability to radically transform ourselves with consistent effort. I know this because I have been transformed. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. So what period of time did all of that occur and where were you before and where are you now with what you're doing with your life as a result? Mm
1: -hmm. I like the small questions. (laughs)
0: they're easier and shorter shorter yeah
1: um i first started asking questions about what it means to be a man uh in 2001 that was the first time i was introduced to the idea and at that point i was i was 23 so um at that point i mean i'd never really been taught anything about what it means to be a man um but I knew that something,
0: why is that? Sorry. Can I pause you and ask you why that is? Oh, geez.
1: Probably for the same reasons that we were talking about in terms of shame that, you know, the culture that I grew up in as a little boy, um, you know, Homer Simpson, everybody loves Raymond, you know, just Mm -hmm. laughing at dads and fathers. And and I was thinking about this this morning. I was just waking up and this little melody swam into my head. Girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice, and boys are made of snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. Like, think about that. Like we just grew up singing it, right? But like that's horrible. Like, first of all, women are not made of sugar and spice and everything nice. <laughs> so that is not that's objectively not true. But the idea that in contrast that in contrast to 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 um, mm-hmm. girls you know, boys are made of things that are filthy or gross or snakes and snails and puppy dog tails, like filthy, gross, useless, dangerous thing. And girls are sugar and spice and everything nice. That was just kind of floating around. I I remember probably seeing that when I was five. And so it's hard not to let... And, you know, I was... I guess you might say a more feeling centric boy. I was going to say sensitive, but that word has negative connotations to it. I don't mean in in a negative way, but you know, those things land. It's like, well, what does that, what does that actually mean when I sit down and listen to it? Mm -hmm. So I guess I, I guess I could say that a lot of lessons about masculinity weren't passed down to me in any kind of direct form. Um, not that my dad wasn't a sufficiently masculine man. He was a top gun air force pilot and a successful lawyer and all of that. But I don't think that there was ever the, this is what a man does, son, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. teaching that previous generations may have had. So it wasn't until, it wasn't until summer uh, after 2001, like September 2000, not have nothing to do with 9 11, but in that particular time, that I started asking questions about what it means to be a man. But the time period that you're speaking about, uh, that I was writing about, was between from started in 2006 with my mother's death. That was when I really, there was something I really had to step up into in that. And then also um, it started again in 2013 when I went on the mankind project, new warrior training adventure. And then, then from 2013 up until basically uh, summer of 2020 when I started the Renaissance of men. So it, it became increasingly intense over okay. the past 20 or so That's years. Long
0: time, Yeah. I didn't realize it was that mm. long. So here we are today and your and your mission is to basically help other men experience what you experienced. Is that fair?
1: I would like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I set out, I started the Renaissance of Men because I wanted to be a, a men's coach. I wanted to help coach men through a similar transformation to the one that I had gone through learning some of the techniques that I had learned during my own process of transformation, facilitation techniques. Um, and and the way that I think about this is, you know, I've been in many men's circles, transformative circles, where there are techniques that guide men, guide men and women, frankly, to their inner realities to help them encounter their mistaken beliefs about ourselves. Like if you've seen the movie Inception, um, which I think probably most, you, you haven't seen the movie Inception. Hmm.
0: Okay. But that's not saying anything. I don't that's um, okay. you know. Most people that's probably a, have, I guess. A movie.
1: But, <laughs> but there's, a, there's okay. a way, the ways that our mind appears to work is that. Our beliefs about ourselves drive the course of our lives. And if we have mistaken beliefs about ourselves, then we make mistaken decisions on those mistaken beliefs and we end up somewhere. It's like, how did I get here? It's like, you look deep enough within yourself and you find the mistaken belief and when you can actually encounter the mistaken belief and replace it with a true belief, then life changes essentially around you. And that's what the movie Inception is about.
0: Yep. Yep. I see. Okay. So I've
1: learned some of those techniques of how to get uh, men, uh, humans, men and women to encounter those mistaken beliefs about themselves. But what I've discovered is that many men, myself included, have mistaken beliefs about themselves, particularly around uh, masculinity and manhood. And so, um, mm-hmm. so the work that I wanted to do when I set out to do the Renaissance of Men was around um, helping men encounter those beliefs. It it's took me in a far more exciting and much bigger direction. Um, but, uh, you know, of of which the podcast is related to that, but that is ultimately my goal. Uh, My goal is to get men, uh, men to reevaluate what they know about masculinity, to get women to reevaluate what they know about, uh, masculinity to, and in the hopes that that will also, as is the work that you're doing, help women reevaluate what they know about feminine, femininity. And when Mm -hmm. men who are familiar with masculinity and women who are familiar with femininity come together, we have what I call the great reconciliation, and so if you ask about my life mission, my life mission is the great reconciliation.
0: Yeah, you and me both, you and me both. That's awesome. Um, so let's, I wanna define masculinity. Let's go ahead and define it or let's define what it is not. Sure. Because I think there seems to be a lot of confusion, particularly in the men's space, men's rights space about about this. Obviously, you know that you're fully in it, but I, I sort of got into it by accident when I wrote this piece, The War on Men back in 2012. Mm. And that was um, just a kind of a one-off. It was just strange. It was for it was in preparation for another, for a book that was coming out, and that's probably the only time I ever titled something that the people kept it was for Fox News, and they they actually kept the title, mm-hmm. you know. And it came out of me really easily and really fast, which isn't typically how I operate, but it did. And it um, fe- feminists got a hold of it, and it went viral, and I think it remains one of Fox News's most ro- op most read op eds in history. Oh. And yeah, and that kind of catapulted me into this men's rights space. Um, literally just ended up there. And I, I dabbled in that for Welcome. a while. What Welcome. That? Yeah. Thank you. And so I, I kind of got in it and then I moved back out and I feel like I sort of moved back yeah. in, especially since my YouTube channel, um, I started using it. I mean, I, I think I had it for a few years and it just lay dormant and we, we really just didn't start to like a year ago. Um, and and between that and my Facebook page, which I've had for a long time, um, I see the men who are hurting, mm. and I see the comments. Obviously, I can't help but see them. So I've stumbled into this space where I didn't really intend to be, and and I, I wanted to be the space where men were free to be, you know, say what they wanted to say without shutting mm. them down because I didn't feel like there was a space for that. Um, unfortunately, over time... I, I've realized that there, there are, it's like, there's two groups. I'm sure there are more than two, but to my mind, there are like two groups so the ones who are just bitter and angry. And all they say is never get married and women suck. And then there's the ones like you and I, who are trying to have this reconciliation Mm -hmm. as you, as you say. And the first group is not helpful to me. So after X amount of years on my Facebook page, I finally just started and I warned them, Hey, if all you're going to come on here and do is say women suck, don't marry them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delete your comments mm. because I don't want this space to be about that anymore. Right. And it was, it was years after letting it. And people were just like, can you get these people off? This is not helpful. And I agreed after a while. Um, I see it on YouTube, but I don't have any power there. And besides that's a different forum or platform. And I, all of which is to say, I get it. I hear you. I appreciate it. Um, but I don't think the bitterness is helpful even though I understand mm. it. So how do you, in the world, because you're more immersed in it, decipher between the ones that are just going to vent forever and, and, and whatever and those who want to do better and be better and find better and all of mm.
1: at my I look at my hurting brothers and I say that um, they need medicine. And the medicine that they need is not necessarily obvious, um, but they do need it. And, um, first of all, what, you know, I'm the Renaissance is a, is this 40 year process. It's something that's so much larger, larger than me. I didn't create it. I just, I just gave it a, a name. And a lot of people have asked me, well, what about these men that have all this very obvious anger that they express, you know, um, vitriolically, if that's even a word, what about them? Are they, are they part of the Renaissance? You know, this, this notion of that's corrosive, this, you know, are they part of it? And what I say is, there's no victims in the Renaissance. If you perceive yourself to be a victim, if you have that kind of mindset, you're not you're you're not part of what's going on, because and here's the thing about victim victim ideology, it hurt. It's so tragic because it hurts no one more than the person who holds it. If you if you treat if you Amen. believe you are a victim then you and you believe that circumstances are out of your control or beyond your ability to take responsibility over you are cutting yourself off from your own potential that is a universal truth universal i do not make the rules i just work here right and that's just how it is like it, by when you when you carry victimhood ideology you weaken yourself and when you put it down...
0: Well, you might as well pack it in, call it a day, right. it's over. That's right. That,
1: and that's that's what I was... There's nowhere to go. That's right. That's what I was writing about on my website. I was a victim of my social circles, my job, all these different circumstances. I, I, I wouldn't have used that word, but I believe that I wasn't up to my own circumstances. And in some sense, I wasn't because it took a lot of time for me to build my own strength to be able to make the really hard decisions to change my circumstances. So unfortunately, the, the people who remain in a victimhood mindset... They, they decide to keep themselves weak and they do the only thing that they can, mm-hmm. which is to latch lash out in online forums at strangers. And, and yes, it's very hard to hear and to read some of that stuff, but truly what it is, is it's a, it's a, to say that it's a cry for help is to, is to, is to frame it incorrectly. I think it's, it is a cry for help and I'll leave it there because I don't know that I could pick any other words to say it, but the help that they're asking for is, is, they're asking to be confronted by a truly strong, just and good masculine man that will help take the poison yeah. out of them. And the thing is, we as men are so deeply divided from each other. Now we're all isolated because of like COVID land, right? Mm-hmm. So we can't, so men have been denied men's groups, uh, like like uh, male fraternal societies, right? Footballs now has women coming into it. Male only spaces are not trusted. They're not allowed to mm-hmm. be. What mm-hmm. men used to do in male only spaces is that we would heal each other we would heal and transform each other through dialogue, through, through presence. That's a very real thing that men do with Mm -hmm. each other. And I don't know if you got the chance to see any of that at 21. It's not something that's some magical process. It's that men being around masculine men finally see an ideal that they can aspire to and it helps guide their behavior. But now men have been isolated from each other and they aren't allowed to do that. And so you get men, sorry, just to finish the thought, men that are left behind that Mm -hmm. are, that are lashing out when what they really need is other men in their lives to, Hey, like, Hey, that's not okay, but we're going to go out in the woods and we're going to sort this out. That's been denied us, and so I look at those men and I say, "I want to offer healing to them."
0: And and I think that's been going on for long before COVID. Oh yeah. and the whole—I mean, remember poker games in the basement with the men, or going down to your local bar, or what? Like that's gone for married yes. men. It's women. Married yes. women get together all the time. Married men have no one, and you can say, "Well, that's." Just them, they can go out and do it whenever they want. But it, to some degree, it has to be fostered. I think, yes. don't you think? I mean, I, a man isn't going to feel like he can leave the house if you're not um, open to and encouraging of his leaving. If you're going to be like, well, you need to be back here, or how long did you get versus how long did I get, and all that comp. Now we're getting into what I what I see and what yeah, I do. Sure. The competition piece. You know they're going to be pulled between. Well, I need this, but but I I want to do right here. And there's just they, there needs to be space for them to go away and do what they need to do with other. That's men.
1: right. It doesn't exist today. It, and there's lots of reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is, as you describe, uh, many women having the shaming power over men and being like, "Well, you know, why do you get to go out and do this and I don't get to do this?" And it's like, "Well, it's not a trade off." That's one. That is an aspect of it. Yes, I think I think men and their relationships has also been degraded. Um, so for a long time as well, so that men would get together and play poker and it's very superficial or they watch the football game together and there's actually no deeper communication. It's just men sitting around with each other, not actually doing the thing that things that men do, you know, being afraid to give each other gentle ribbing, you know what I mean? Being afraid to really, mm-hmm. you know, to really confront each other, which is what men do. Men communicate by teasing each other, you know, by seeing if they could take it and mm-hmm. escalates and there's a dance mm-hmm. to it and there's a joy to it. Right. And and until someone can't take it or men open, men learn to open up that way. And then finally, after it can be many hours or even days of doing that men getting away together, a man will finally find the courage to be like, hey, there's something that's actually going wrong in my life that I need to talk about right? And that's how yeah. men, it takes men a long time to get there, but when they get there, they get there. But if men aren't allowed to connect in that way, if there's one woman in the room, everything changes. Or if men have been feminized or they don't trust other men or their father was absent or whatever, they don't know, they can't walk that process. And so everything, like they're around each other, but they're not doing what men do when they used to get around each other. They're not offering uh, They're not offering a masculine, a truly masculine presence to each other. And so that needs to be recreated. So not only do they have to be I don't want to say given permission to leave because men just need to be like no i'm going to hang out with my guys tonight like deal with Mm -hmm.
0: it Uh, yes absolutely So
1: not only do they need to feel the confidence and able to do that and to know that there won't be knives waiting for them when they get home right which is a thing Mm -hmm. right because men will Mm -hmm. give up a lot of themselves and this isn't particularly well understood men will give up a lot of themselves to keep peace in the home and so when you you know Mm -hmm. men will men will and you know this men will hide Mm -hmm. entirely everything that they are they'll they'll shame it out of existence Mm -hmm. To, just to keep, just to try and keep peace in the home, it's it's horrible. But so men need to first confront that, and then they need to discover what it is to be around each other again. And so, if I can do anything with the Renaissance of men, it will be to help men discover what it is to actually be around other men. And that will that is, and it has been a beautiful process in my life.
0: I find that the best help that people can get is when a man or a husband, I I work mostly with married couples, Mm. but also people who are in relationships who are not married. Um, When the man does exactly like what you just said, working primarily with men to sort of figure out who they are and what's appropriate to uh, how to move through the world in a way that doesn't cause you to subjugate yourself Mm. or allow yourself to be um, subsumed or whatever. And while I'm working with the woman on, understanding how to bring out the best in a man and how to get the best from mm-hmm. him by loving him and understanding him rather than being adversarial mm-hmm. and rather than competing with him. Oh, and it's a huge, it's not overnight. Let's put it that way. And no. ideally <laughs> if they're both doing it, gosh, that's the best. And I, that doesn't happen a lot, but if I can get them both doing that separate, working with separate people, it's awesome. But usually it's just me with, with the wife and then occasionally working with a husband. But um, I know that you know a lot about this from having met with Alison Armstrong, mm-hmm. who you mentioned earlier. And we I'd say we both have a very similar mission. Um, she wrote this book, The Queen's Code, that um, is a fiction-based way of telling the story of what's happened in this country, mm-hmm. whereas I'm just straight up nonfiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not creative enough to, to create a story around it. Um, So two totally different tactics for the same ultimate goal, which is, wow, you don't realize how much you are emasculating your man. You just have no Mm -hmm. idea until you see it. And it's sort of my job to explain and show what that looks like and what the inevitable result is. And if you turn that on its head and learn the, well, she, she phrases it, the code, but learn their language and you speak it that is overnight that you can start to see how manifestly wrong you've been going about this, yes. you know, because when you put it into action, it, like the whole experience of turning the relationship around and being different takes a lot of time. But what's great about it is I show them these skills that they can see within 24 hours. Wow. That, that really mm-hmm. worked. more. Give me more, give me more. And that's, that's where the, magic happens is like seeing that for yourself quickly. And then wanting to learn and know more about, yeah. Like you've just been working with the road. wrong map altogether. Here's, here's a new one for you, you know, and it's life changing.
1: That's so beautiful.
0: Really satisfying.
1: That's so beautiful to hear because yeah. sometimes it can appear very much like, um, the, the question is what are the intentions that the women, the women are working with? Is it that they actually have good intentions for their men and they're going about it the wrong way? Or is it actually that they enjoy causing harm? And there are certainly people in the world, men and women doesn't matter that enjoy causing harm that enjoy having a feeling of power over other people. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, there are also people that succumb to their weaknesses that are predatory in that way. But it's very, it's very heartwarming to me to know that women just really want to know they get how to get the best out of their men. And, um, and, and are truly just going about it sort of blindly the wrong way that women do actually want that because, you know, you, you, those angry men, you know, they show up in their con, they really do question and they have many of those men in the men's rights world have reason to question women's intentions.
0: Yeah. And that's what I meant by bringing that up earlier, because I want to tell them, Hey, I hear you. And there are women like that, but I, I mean, I don't have numbers, you know, it's just my my little experience, I guess, but from what I see, um, there's maybe a hundred women, women for one who genuinely doesn't realize what they're doing. And when you get to that pain point and they, um, really want to stay married or stay with the person they're open. It's the people like I try to determine in advance when I, cause I give people a free 30 minute call if they're considering long-term coaching and I try to decipher whether or not I think you're all in because if, if you're not all in and you don't want this more than anything else in the world, this is not going to work because this is, this is a whole new way of living and communicating Mm and um, just not even just that, but thinking a whole new way of thinking about men and marriage. And if it's so contrary to everything that you've been taught, the only way you're going to be receptive is when you're kind of desperate. And I, I, I don't want it to get to that point, but I have discovered that if you're check if you have one foot out the door and you're not all in, I can't help mm-hmm. you. You know, just you're it's not going to work. And I, you know, there have been times where I've accidentally kind of thought that they were, and then started working with them, and I realize a couple of them in like, oh, she's she. It's almost like want she wants a way. Um, she wants to um, say that she tried one last thing before leaving, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, like I had this one gal who was an FBI agent and I knew (laughs) she's got a gun. I said, Oh my God, an FBI agent. Like how many female FBI agents, number one, are there? And and what are the chances that I'd come across one? Right. I think I actually did ask her those numbers and found out and looked it up and it's not a Mm. lot Um, that alone to go into that space and have that. I mean, do you think about the kind of, energy that you're working with on a daily basis Mm -hmm. it is all masculine, all masculine. And she, and she was bringing that to the table all the time and she was not going to let that Mm -hmm. go. There was just no way. And I knew three or four, I'm like, this isn't, she's, she's no. And it didn't work out. So I try to discern but you're right. You have to be all in and ready almost to save it, save the relationship. And you have to make sure you haven't gotten to that point where it's moved into contempt mode or something, Mm -hmm. because at that point, Pretty much all bets are mm-hmm. off. So anyway, I don't know where no, we're talking. Okay. So I didn't mean to talk no, about Thank you. I, I really want to talk about Allison mm-hmm. because I know you spoke with mm-hmm. her. And, Several times. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, same story, right? Same kind of thing? Which part? That I that I deal with, that, she, uh, that she's trying to do in her, but she does them in big groups. She has more, mm-hmm. um, what do you call them, conferences or... Uh,
1: yeah, more the seminars.
0: Uh, it's more yeah. Seminars, thank yeah. you. Um
1: I, I haven't been to any of her seminars, but I have been very blessed to to talk with her in person and spend some time at her home. And then she was on my podcast and we talked for four hours, which was awesome. Yeah, I heard it. Um, yeah. You know, it's like it was the cra it's the craziest <laughs>
0: I don't think we're gonna go that long, Will. What's that? I can't do that long. I don't think we can go that long. That was long, but I listened to it. it was yeah,
1: thank you. I I I like doing long form podcasts just because I find that, you know, for me anyway, the conversation doesn't actually start until you get to around the ninetieth minute. That's when the brainwaves start syncing up, and then you can go from there. But like that's that's just me. So uh, you know, Allison, Allison's approach is um, I, I like the 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 balance and the contrast between the way that the two of you go about it. I like her approach, and I like yours as well. There's a directness to it, you know. These things are being addressed directly on the nose, you know, in your writing, and it just needs to be called out. But there's also a case to be made, and and, and I think, obviously, as you know, many women um, respond to that. They need to hear it. You know, oh, I see it now. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are other mm-hmm. there are other women, and this is true for men and women, that they 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 need to be led to it, and then they make that click themselves, and they need to take that leap. Yeah. and that's how people are yeah. right so i think the dance between yeah. the two of your styles is um is i think it's beautiful and so when i started reading your books i was like oh, this is great this is so needed versus just hinting at it you just say like no this this is what it is yeah. right no <laughs> it's great it's it's great
0: i'm not a beat around the busher no and honestly <laughs> that's we're we're all we're yeah. we're all out
1: of time for beat around the bush mm-hmm. you know what i mean like Amen. Well, yeah Yeah, right. Allison's been doing the work for 30 years. So she's built up enough momentum, you know, behind her entire organization, that that carries the work forward on its own. But for the environment that you're coming now into in the past, say, 10 years, since you wrote that op ed, it's important to be much more direct.
0: I mean, thank you for saying that, because I, I, I don't know how else to do it to sort of get the I mean, we are at this critical point where it's just getting really worse, not better. Right. Yeah. Yes so much that. has happened over the last 10 years. So much, um, that the, the we're just so far apart. Anyway, I want to get to make this a little bit personal, get into real detailed example, because I heard you on an interview the other day, I don't know who it was with talking about men having relationship standards.
1: Oh, that was breaking beta. Just like the breaking beta podcast. And,
0: okay. Um, and you use an example of wanting to only marry a woman who I'm so excited to talk to talk about this, who puts family first and you were in a relationship with somebody, correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, uh, you're in a relationship with somebody that you eventually broke it off with. And it was long-term relationship that you did that because you determined that you were not going to come first or that family was something to that effect that you were last on our list because she had children and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So let's, can we talk about of course, that? Yeah. I think that's so important. And I love that as an example. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I I can back all this out and say that the way that I was raised by, um, the way, the way that I was raised by my, by my mother was that is, was not to have any boundaries that she, she raised me and cultivated me specifically to be almost boundaryless when it came to her and her needs. Right. Which, you know, there's a there's all different reasons that I can ascribe to that, you know. Was it narcissistic? Yes. By the way, I love my mother and I forgive my mother, but nonetheless, this is the reality of what it was. Was it narcissistic? Yes. Was it intentionally predatory? I don't know. But you know, certainly there was a lot of like, I'm gonna car, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I can to break down my own son's barriers against me because I have needs that I'm putting on him that don't belong on him, right? Now that was a big part of my journey was working through that. So that showed up again in that long term relationship that I was in that I wasn't able to say no, I don't actually want to be in this long-term relationship. I'm going to put down a boundary and go my own way. I had to grow in my own strength to really get to a point where I could put down a boundary and say like, no, this is not what I want for my life. And I'm, I'm a man and I'm not doing anything that violates my own conscience. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I just have a responsibility to live my own life because I've been given one life and I can't live this Mm -hmm. whole life, you know, Mm uh essentially being in a position where i'm taking care of someone else but i don't want to be here that it's not fair to either of us was you know what kind of what was going on but that same behavior
0: and what's the time frame here what's the time frame
1: when was this? we're talking um 2000 and 2005 to 2015 is when we're talking right now so 10 year period okay yeah there's all okay. there's all different things that are wrapped up in this including you know illnesses and and stuff like that so it's 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 more complicated okay. than that but that was one of the root mm-hmm. dynamics but then this showed up again in this relationship that you heard about in the podcast that I was just on where I had um, I had moved to a foreign country to be with a woman and was deeply in love with her and I thought we were going to get married and we had been together doing kind of a long-term relationship long distance relationship thing for a couple years. I was traveling a lot. I would travel and go see her, travel and then go see her and I'm like, "Okay, I'm either going to make the decision to end this relationship now and continue traveling or I'm going to go to this foreign country which happened to be New Zealand and give it a go." And I thought about it for months and I said, you know what, if I don't do this, I'll always look back and wonder what if I'm going to move to New Zealand. So, I moved to New Zealand and tried to make it work. And what happened when I got there was that things weren't going great. Like, I'm finally here. Like, the plane should be taking off. You know, let's do this. We're going to be together. But there wasn't that enthusiasm or that excitement. And I, it took me months to figure out what was going on. And what I finally realized, and she had four four daughters from a previous um a previous marriage and daughters who I loved, by the way, I I treated them as if they were my own. And, but yet I wanted my own kids. And so when I finally got to New Zealand, what I determined was that she had reached a stage in her life where she was very interested in finally having a career. She had been a stay at home mom um, for four girls and was now she had gifts and skills that she wanted to cultivate and that she had every right to learn how to cultivate, especially, you know, given the things that she was interested in nonetheless, I wanted kids. And, um, I determined that that was not her interest. That was not her primary interest. She was going another way and she had earned the right to go another way, you know, to really develop her skills. But I didn't want our child or children to get any less attention from her than her previous daughters would have. And that was the direction we were going. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't, you know, this is not, this is not what I would ever want from my children. Um, and made the very difficult this difficult decision to end it. Not that I'm opposed to women working, but I don't think that there's, you know, I, I imagine that, you know, when a woman is pregnant and worried about a work presentation, you know, the baby picks up on that. Or when she's nursing and checking her phone because mm-hmm. there's something going on, the baby picks up on that subconsciously, you know, for sure in the first three years of life.
0: All along the way. Yeah all along the all way,
1: along the way. Mm-hmm. and like no i'm i'm i will not participate in that world i've had mm-hmm. enough of it and it was an excruciating decision
0: so let's bring that to a broad i want to take that same idea and apply it to a um to a more what i think would be more common situation without the long distance piece uh well at least that kind of long sure, distance yeah. and without the already been married and have four children piece so let's take it down to 20 year olds or some somebody who's Somebody who's younger, nobody's had kids yet. And a man is considering whether or not to marry a woman. And one of the things that I don't think they ever hear is that it's okay to not want to marry a career woman, which should not be differentiated. I mean, sorry, which should be differentiated from a woman who will maybe have a career at some point. Because it's not about whether or not she works. It's about what comes first in her life, period, end of story. And if you are a man who wants a traditional family life structure, doesn't have to be leave it to beaver, just a structure there where um, he's primarily responsible for money and she's primarily responsible for the early years and that 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 will morph over time. Right working part- time work, you know whatever, but basically he's the the primary breadwinner, even if she ends up working to some degree, and he feels that he can't say that he feels that he can't um, want that because that of course, because of course men have been just as acculturated as women to believe that that's somehow holding her back. Mm-hmm rather than what it really means and what it's really about. So I've often written about just the the man who grows up without a fa- with a fatherless, um, I don't wanna say fatherlessness because I wanna say father absence, which is something Warren Farrell's good mm-hmm. about to um, identify that you, you may not be fatherless, but you don't have father in the home. If you grew up without that, like my husband, whose parents got divorced when he was nine or 10, um, he very much wanted a traditional life for the children that he would have so that they did not experience what he experienced. Men don't say that. Mm-hmm. They don't say that when they're dating the woman because they're scared. Mm-hmm. So when I heard you tell the story, even though it's the circumstance is a little bit different, you were older and it made, I don't know, maybe it was clear in that case, but if you go back or if you think about it in a, in this other context, how can we help men understand that that's okay to want that and that, you need to make sure you marry the person whose priorities are the same as yours and not feel that you're doing anything wrong mm-hmm. by, um, mm-hmm. by doing that. Mm-hmm. Cause I think a lot of men are just getting married anyway and just wanting to defer to her with whatever she wants to do with that. And they have really serious feelings about what they think about it, but they're not saying mm-hmm.
1: it. you just articulate and good reasons. For thinking that. Oh yeah. I mean, you just articulated something that took me, years of work to surface within myself. It took me years of self-work. That was how that was how far gone I had shamed that out of myself to say that, no, I, I don't want this, A, and B, I do want this. That was a huge, That was a huge journey for me.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you if you would have done what you said you did with this woman 10 years prior or 15 years prior, if you'd been in a relationship before you had this transformation, mm. you would have felt... Uh, as free to do that. That's one thing that I thought of.
1: Well, it showed up It showed up in a couple different ways. You know, First, with the relationship that I was in, I was living in San Francisco the one, with a woman who was older than me. And then it showed up again in a different way, another face of it with a woman that we're speaking about. But they were both two halves of the same thing, as do I, as a, as a man, have the strength and self-belief to claim what it is that I want and to say, I want this, this is good, and this is true. And I will not allow myself to be shamed by you or anybody else over it get out of my way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had to learn to do that. And so for men, mm-hmm. for men who are in their twenties, I think the first message that I would give to them is that it is okay to want that. It is absolutely totally okay to want that. And your culture is lying to you. If it tells you otherwise, it is actively intentionally lying to you. It knows what it's doing. Then most people don't recognize the culture is lying to you. Does not change the fact that the culture is lying and where the words and the messages are come from, come from liars intentional that are doing it on purpose to poison you to poison your soul so that's one
0: for political purposes for political pr- not because they give a shit about your life yes, exactly or whether you're happy or not it's for them yes. you're basically following what they want you to do for them that's right so your whole life is created based on Benefiting somebody
1: else right. and not you. That's right. Specific men are that's crazy. Men and women are specifically being weakened for political purposes, and this is one of the core lies. So the first the first message that I would deliver to men is it is okay to want that. That's the first thing. The second thing though is that it's a very difficult position to tell a man that you can ask a woman for that. That would depend on the nature of the communication and the relationship. What I normally tell men and what men in, in Say so the men's movement broadly tell men, and what seems to be the most effective advice is you can't tell, you have to show. And by show, you have to do what it takes to transform yourself and to craft yourself into the highest version of yourself. And that means physical fitness, financial fitness, mm-hmm. um, style, right? Poise, confidence. And then you become a man who makes his own way in the world, who can carve his own way in the world, and who says, Hey, I got some room here on the passenger seat and i got i got i want someone to sit here with me as i'm going this way and that's an easier place than to say hey babe i want you to stop working you become a man you become the man that a woman wants to not work for right that seems to work better
0: and i actually had a question about that for later but since you mentioned mm-hmm. i'll bring that up now tell everybody why the physical fitness like I can imagine some people going what the heck does physical fitness have to do with this so let explained. I know I know I know what you I want you to explain because I actually had that written down is to explain why physical fitness is the beginning point of everything else for the man who wants to transform himself in the way that you do oh. since you actually began that way as well
1: oh yeah I mean there's I can think of a dozen different reasons let'll just say the one that comes out of my mouth first um what I explained to men at the 21 convention is is that uh, I believe that shame in our bodies, the, the, the energy of shame crystallizes physiologically in the form of fat cells. So that if you internalize, and it makes sense, right? Like when, it, when someone is in shame, they're in pain. What do you do when you're in pain? You drink, you eat, right? Right. You smoke weed or cigarettes, you play video games, masturbate to porn, whatever it is, whatever however it is you mm-hmm. self-medicate. Mm-hmm. All of those things have the function of decreasing activity, increasing ter- caloric intake and testosterone goes down. And that shame and en- shame enters the body through excess calories, normally through uh, junk food, seed oils and stuff and it crystallizes in the body in the form in the form of fat cells. And so by by exercising, by getting in physical fitness shape, That shame physically is purged out of the body on a, on a metaphysical, on a metabolic, metabolic level, metabological level. Yeah. Okay. But that's, but that's one, that's just one aspect to it. The other aspect is that when you're physically fit and in shape, you are no longer invisible. So people, people, so the same way that men who are overweight, there are men that are very, very skinny, like Reed skinny. Those men are trying to disappear. They're trying to become invisible because when you're overweight, you're to some extent invisible, depending on how you carry yourself. But for most people, you're invisible. Same with very skinny men. Physical fitness means that when you see see someone who's physically in shape, you can't help but miss them. They carry themselves in a different way. They show up. They dress in a certain way. They become visible. They have to stand up to shame. And then you begin to see exactly how powerful physical fitness is because it roots you into the world as a man in a way that will transform everything around you in the same thing that had happened with me. I lost 40 pounds during 2020 when lockdown hit. This relationship that we're talking about that I was in New Zealand that ended, that I had to leave. I moved back to Arizona. I live in Phoenix now. I moved into my apartment straight from that relationship basically. And then the COVID lockdowns hit and I'm alone in a new city. I don't know anybody. I have no furniture because I've been living overseas It's just me with a bed essentially in the same apartment that I'm in right now. And I said, you know what? I'm going to sort out my life. I'm going to give myself the gift of life. And I spent the next 60 months, uh, 60 months, six months losing 40 pounds.
0: 60 60 months. months, Right. Yeah.
1: Some people need to do that, but that is the journey. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And uh, I gave myself the gift of life and the Renaissance of Men was born from that process because I had taken Mm. all the shame that I had and the grief that I was carrying at the end of the relationship. And I purged out of my system and I suddenly found that I showed up. Oh, look, I'm here now. And now I know what I have to say. And so that's, and it begins with how you treat your physical vehicle because you are your body. You are not only your body, but you are your body. And how you treat your physical temple, how you cre- treat your physical vehicle is a reflection of how you treat yourself. And when you treat your physical vehicle mm-hmm. well, you find that's pretty easy to treat the rest of you well also. And when you treat yourself well, other people treat you well and you usher out the people who don't treat you well from your life. And so, um, you know, that's, that's my position to people.
0: Okay. So go back to when you first mentioned it with respect to saying, okay, I want to be with a woman who wants to be home and be maternal and that's her focus kind of thing. What's the connection with that, what you just described to his being able to, I think you were saying model it as opposed to saying it, right? Yeah. Show it 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 instead of tell it. Showing it instead of telling. So, how would being that kind of man that you describe show that to a woman without telling her?
1: Are we talking about a man who's already in a relationship or who wants to get into one?
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. I think both.
1: Well, I think both. Okay. Uh, I would say different things to men in those two situations. So, if you're a man that's in a relationship and you want to go in, let's say, a more traditional direction, the way that you do that is by leading. And if your um, if your wife or partner won't let you lead them, you know doesn't want to be led, then you have to begin by leading yourself. And you have to understand that if if you are if you have been a man who has not led yourself up until that point in time, and you begin leading yourself effectively you'll get enormous pushback from everyone around you subconsciously. You will see the crab pot in action. Oh, I'm not drinking, you know, right now. You go to a party with friends or whatever. Oh, I'm not drinking right now because I'm trying to lose weight. Why? You are not drinking right now. People get real weird when you tell them that you don't drink, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's very strange. I know. Yep. You know, you'll see the yep. crab pot in action when you try to improve yourself. You see people subtly trying to take you down a peg and you have to push through all that. Mm-hmm. And then when you become leading yourself and you become effective at leading yourself, uh, then you will eventually run into a position where um you 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 will need your wife or partner to fall into line let's say with your or to follow your leadership and she mm-hmm. will either do that or she won't. And, well, she won't and that's right and and that will be and when that moment comes you will have to make it clear somehow that that's what the moment is it's like i am leading and you don't have to use these words mm-hmm. but it's like mm-hmm. look understand the decision that you're making right now you're making, like, I'm, I'm attempting to lead in this direction. This is the way that I'm going. Do you want to mm-hmm. go on board me on this journey or not? And then she makes the choice. I
0: think when I um, first read some years ago, um, I had that on my list here, too. Dr. Robert Glover's mm, book, No More Mr. No. No Mr. Yeah, Night guy. Um, great book. That's the first time I think I ever got, got exposed to this whole concept. Um, he, he talks about how when you do this, and I, it's the same thing. Um, well, no, it's not exactly the same thing. I was going to say it's the same thing on the women's side for what mm-hmm. I do. When he, Similar. when and when he's able to do that, sort of. Except that he pointed out in there that sh- she may not be responsive. Like she may hate it mm-hmm. when you lead and you start to step up yeah. and you're your own person. Yeah. And then what are you going to do, right? And that's what makes a lot of men not want to do it because what if she's, what if she doesn't follow? What if she says screw mm-hmm. you? And that's and but again, it comes back to well, you're going to be authentically you or you're not, or you're going to be a follower. Mm -hmm. Um, and that gets a little complicated if you're talking about what stage of the relationship Mm -hmm. you're in and if you have children and Mm -hmm. all of that, because of course in the ideal world, you will do this prior to ever getting married and having kids. So that within the first couple of dates, you just make that clear and walk away if it's not a match, but doing it down the road is unquestionably harder. Unfortunately, that's what we're going to be dealing with, with a lot of people. Yes. Um, so, so, so people who read no more Mr. Nice guy and become this, what he calls, I think, integrated male, um, which is kind of what we're talking about. Um, be, be, be prepared that, that it may not end the way you want mm-hmm. it to, that she may not respond the way you want her to. Yes. Um, that's, that's hard to swallow. Mm -hmm. The reason why I started to say it's similar to me with the, on the, with the women's side is because it doesn't work that way so much with men. When women become the feminine creatures that they are meant to be, if they can manage it, Mm -hmm. I find that a man is almost always responsive positively. Mm -hmm. He's not going to run away. So it isn't quite the same, which is why I always say women have more power in terms of the relationship space because men are so, this goes back to Alison Armstrong, but it's so true responsive to women. They respond naturally to, to women much more so than the other way around.
1: Yes. I I think the women, women will get feedback. They'll get pushback from the other women in their lives. Like, you know, you know, that's the thing. They won't, they won't get it from their men, but they'll get, they'll get it from the women. Yep. And that's,
0: I hear about it all the time. That's the
1: worst part.
0: Yep. And they have to, it is the worst part because they have to fight with them and say no. I'm doing this for my marriage. Well, what are you like a submissive woman or you you let your man? Oh, it just makes me.
1: Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'll be really honest right now. Men sometimes men need to protect women from other women. Like this is that's a reality. A hundred. That's a reality.
0: A Hundred percent agree. Hundred percent. Yeah. Which, of course, they, you know, I mean, that would not go over well with a lot of women. What are you going to tell me who I can and can't hang out with? Well, yeah, yeah. if it's hurting the relationship, because your marriage should come first. Yeah. And if you're with somebody who's bringing you down, who's bringing your husband down, or maybe you're bringing your husband down and they're agreeing with you, you are doing it all wrong. That's, right. that's, that's not how it works. That's right. It's not how it should work. Well,
1: Kevin Samuel says single women keep, sing- keep women single. Single women keep women single. That that There's a dynamic where, you know, if a woman's in a relationship or married and she's got a single friend, mm-hmm. her single friend is going to, you know, with her own, no you know, as a result of potentially bad attitudes or mistaken beliefs about men, mm-hmm. will actively try to undermine her own friend. Like, that's, that's heavy, but that's real. That's real. And it's like, that's a real tragedy that's like, well, let's talk about that, right? Sugar and spice and everything nice, right?
0: Oh, my God. This is such a, I mean... The idea that women are, um, yeah, harmless, um, simply because they don't lash out physically when they do lash out, it gives them free reign to be manipulative or to lie or to do, do these things that are not so obvious to the naked eye, unless you're in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, and we give them a free pass. Um, yeah, you know, men know in all kinds of ways. Sorry. what did you say? And my, in all kinds of ways, we give women a free pass. And then when you bring it up, you're a misogynist and a woman hater, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman that says that I get told I'm a traitor to my sex. It's horrible. You'll just be called just a typical man. You know, you you know, yeah. they control the language. And so the people, they're not, there aren't a lot of people like you and I who are going to stand up here and do this yes. um, um, in such a public way. Yeah.
1: And, and the, the really, the, the sad part is, is that um, it doesn't really matter to me it probably doesn't matter to you either. Same. It's like look, uh, <laughs> yeah. I know the I know the truth of your life, not yours yours, but you know what I mean? It's like I know the truth of your life. I know that you're miserable and I know that you're hurting and that it's easier to it's easier to pick on me personally than it is mm-hmm. to actually like mm-hmm. look at your own life and hear what I'm saying. Yes. I don't want to cause you I, you know, I don't want to cause you harm. I don't want to cause you pain, but I want to look at the truth because the truth heals. That's the beautiful thing about the truth. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you won't feel pain at first in encountering the truth. Like yeah, you might. But ultimately, if you have the strength to hold on to that, like it burns, but then it heals. And that's the most beautiful thing about the truth, right? And so it's like, yeah, I can stand behind that it, without any intention to cause harm. It's like, look, this is just true. Can we just have the be true together? It'll be okay. It'll be okay. But I will say, I will say there are men that wield the truth and women as well. There are men and women that wield the truth as a weapon and they dishonor the truth in doing that. And that is, a real, that is a real tragedy. And so what you do with the truth is as important as the truth that you're holding. And so that's why it's going to take people of real compassion, of real heart, of real integration, to be able to hold the truth up to the world, to the public, and to say, look, I'm not trying to cause harm with this, but I do need to say it.
0: And to not apologize. Yes. Oh my God, don't get me started on the apology craze that has taken over America every time somebody in power says something honest and then backtracks because people came out and told them they were the devil. All the time. It makes me absolutely crazy
1: all the time. It's really sad that all the time. they don't have the courage of their conviction. And you're
0: selling your soul really because you're saying, "Okay, I'll 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 back down and say that it, I apologize." Apologize for what? Mm-hmm. You know, just so you can keep your job or what have you. And no, and I I try to be somewhat sympathetic to that because if your job really is on the line, I don't know, it's hard for me because I don't have an employer. And 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 I'm the type of person who when I did have one, I still I still would leave over, uh, uh, selling my soul, so to speak, or going against my conscience. That's just who I am. Like Lauren, like Warren Farrell. And, and, and if, and if, you know, your job, I mean, I don't know. That's just how I feel about it. There's always another job and there's a place for you and I believe it will work out. So to say it as a means of, well, I needed to keep my job. So there, I don't Mm -hmm. know, just, I can't really buy it. It's just really hard for me. But you and I are really committed to the truth, and I don't—I don't know that that's most people's number one mission in life. <laughs> right,
1: right, for sure, for sure. And, and there are people that are, that are, pe- there are people that are actively committed against the truth, and they're, you know, on a, from a let's say a socio-political level. And there are people that are actively afraid of the truth's presence in their own lives, because if they were forced to look at the truth in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Man, it it would cause some really uncomfortable situations. And I feel for those those people, and I was and I was in that position. You read you read the piece Mm -hmm. from my website. I was in that position. I avoided the truth about my own life for years. But but and truthfully, I've asked, how was I able to get out of that? And and the only answer that I've ever been able to come up with that means anything to me is I say that God, God, literally God blessed me with the desire to live. I don't know where that came from. I wanted to live so badly that I was willing to do whatever it took and confront any truth that I needed to confront. I needed to, I wanted to live. And that wasn't a gift from, that wasn't something that was taught to me. That isn't something that shows up elsewhere in my family is for whatever, whatever feeling within myself, within my heart that I wanted to live. And life come, life comes through the truth. And so I confronted the truth about myself over and over and over again. I, I turned myself inside out and I finally got to a place where I learned, a lot of the things, I won't say everything, but I learned a lot of things that I needed to learn. But that desire to live came from God. And I, I don't know how to give that to people except to tell them that you can probably discover it within mm-hmm. yourself and it will be okay. Mm-hmm. The great reconciliation is a, is a beautiful vision that I have for men and women. True unity, true unity, true union. Um, and the only way that we're going to get through get there is is through the truth. Um, and so that's what I've committed my life to.
0: So we'll... Do you have a day job, or did you ever have a day I have job? A day. That's one thing I haven't asked you yet. Like, what was your life before all of this? Ugh. Just your working life. You, I know you went to Stanford. I did tell everybody that at the mm. beginning. Sorry, I know you like to downplay it, but I think it's important. Who, and then something happened. What did you major in, and where, what did you do right away after college?
1: Um, so when I was in college, I um, I was in college during the dot com boom in the early not in the late nineties. And so um I was I was part of that I left school when I was 20 something like that and started a company raised 20 million dollars hired a bunch of people the company ultimately didn't work out but that that taught me the lessons of entrepreneurship so I've applied that in various ways throughout my life within big companies starting small companies etc so um so companies would hire me to do entrepreneurial stuff inside their company like we need this new project started you know you can function on your own so I would do that I started some of my own companies. I started some music production companies for a long time. When I lived in San Francisco, I was trying to be a professional house music DJ and DJing at the time was regarded in many ways as an art form. And now it's kind of a spectacle. I was more on, I was very much on the art form side and I can talk about that at length if you'd like. But um, so my, my time was spent during the day in various office environments um, and uh, you know, doing, entrepreneurial things to small or large scales, large, not, not super huge, not to the level of like startup, you know, dot com startup again. And then at night I was occupying myself with various things related to my music pursuits. And it was, you know, it was actually, as I think back on it quite painful because I was sort of trapped in this, this, this perpetual rhythm of the week where it's like, you know the DJ world. You have you go out to nightclubs on the weekend. You know Thursday, Friday, yeah. Saturday nights, sometimes Sundays, and then before you know it, the weekday is there, and then you're back in a work in, in a work environment, and you know That's alcohol hard. and money. Wow. Yeah, it's it was really really difficult. Yeah. It was a yeah. prison that I had trapped myself in, based on things that I that mm-hmm. I wanted, that I was looking in the wrong places for. Um, and I liberated myself to um let go of them and found greater happiness than I ever thought I could.
0: Okay. So I'm going to ask you one last thing, which is completely different from, I think it's a sidebar, but maybe not. Maybe you'll probably make a connection, which is great. I want to ask you about poetry mm. because it's on your site and you, and and you like poetry. I think, um, I am not a poet at all, but my husband actually is. Mm. So I never get a chance to really talk to anybody, especially a man about poetry. Well, I don't know anybody I should say. So tell me, what that means to you and what that, where that falls into all this.
1: So when I started the Renaissance of men podcast, um, I was very inspired by the example of uh, Ryan Mickler's order of man. And uh, Ryan does three episodes a week. He does an interview podcast like this. He does an episode called ask me anything where he takes questions from his audience. He does a Friday field notes episode where he just kind of riffs for about 20 minutes or 30 minutes about a topic of his choosing and so I liked that he had a couple different formats um, and I was like, well, I'm going to do interviews. What else, what's my other format going to be? And I was thought, I thought about there needed to be like, if you look at the Renaissance of men brand, it's very much inspired by, um, by a lot of classic Greek aesthetics. You know, you can kind of see that it's,
0: yeah, it's a beautiful site. Thank the way. you
1: very much. Shout out to Brandon yeah, Tigard, who helped so. design that for me into the photography. Um But um, it's very inspired by classical Western aesthetic values. And so I'm like, well, what if if I can do like an art interpretation podcast? You know what I mean? Where I look at a painting and sort of describe what's going on in the painting. But I'm like, Uh, but then how's someone going to like pull up the painting and, you know, find an example of it? What do I know about art interpretation? And I had, um, I don't know if I can reach it. I do actually. Hold on a second. Okay. I had this book called uh, Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart which is a poetry anthology by Robert Bly, who has name I mentioned, who wrote the book Iron John, mm-hmm. as well as James mm-hmm. Hillman, who uh, passed away, who was um, a student of Carl Jung's and Michael Mead, who was a poet. And these are all poems about men and masculinity. And I had had this by my bedside. Oh. Yeah, I had had this by my bedside and was reading it when I moved back to the United States. And I was like, well, what if I, what if I read a poem? It's like, oh, what if I read and interpret a poem? For my other format. And so the idea just kind of came to me. And so I started, you know, I don't really have a background. I I took a class on poetry in college, and I loved it. I had a good time, but it wasn't ever a huge part of my life until I started working on these episodes when I found like, wait a minute, I can read this poem. And just by reading English, which I know how to read and thinking about it and talking about it, I can talk my way through what this poem means to me. And so that's where my poetry for men series came from. Which I love doing they're and they're they take hours to produce and, and the episodes last only twenty minutes long, and they're consistently my lowest rated episodes, but I love it
0: <laughs> well that's <laughs> that's kind of what I mean like poetry is so what the what's there's such a small it's like a little little mini cult or something I guess of people who are really into it, but it's not large that's right, right, and so that's why I was so surprised to see you know that that um That you were into that because um, you just don't hear from it.
1: They hear about it very much. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, it's, I don't even want to call it a labor of love because it's just, it's just love. It's like, I think that there's so much beauty and potential poetry used to be part of people's lives. It didn't used to be a thing. In fact, I just learned about this whole, it's called a cowboy poetry, like cowboys during the wild West, you know, when they would, when, when men would be out roaming the lands, taking care of the herds or whatever, they would memorize poems and they would they would write and memorize poems and they would tell them around the campfire, like, poet, like cowboys sitting around campfires wow. under the stars. Yeah. You know, and there's a now whole that's...
0: culture around that. It's like, where did that go? Yeah. Oh, my husband have a lot to say about that. Um, <laughs> um, what's the name of that? What's the title of that book again? It's called Bag I mean, and book, Bone
1: book. Shop of a Heart.
0: And you said that's written by Iron the man who wrote iron Man? no Power? it's a
1: compilation no. it's a compilation of various subjects of, of of other people's poems that um that have been written I yeah that. so there's like sub like various aspects of um men's emotional lives let's say and they gather they group the poems into those kind of subjects so it's like you know chapter um chapter 1 the first the first section is called uh, approach to wildness and chapter 2 is Father's prayers for sons and daughters. And and then there's um mm. you know, making a hole in denial is, you know, chapter seven. I think the, you know, the naive male, loving the community and work, mother and great mother, the cultivated heart, all these different aspects of being oh, a man that are compiled and they compiled poems yeah. related to those subjects. And it's beautiful. It's a wonderful compilation
0: um okay so just to bring this full circle then go back to the iron john book for a second so you that when we kind of opened by you saying that was sort of what the beginning or one of the first big um projects on this whole masculinity thing or no i have not read iron john but i know of it it. you'd love it um yeah what just give us give us the gist of it and why was it the beginning of all this
1: So we talked about at the start, uh, the mythopoetic men's movement about how men started to feel increasingly alienated from American society due to men being taken down a peg culturally and women being elevated in their place. And so that first really started showing up in men's lives in the 80s. And so uh, Robert Bly started leading various men's groups to discuss it around the country. And um, the thing is, is you had men of different backgrounds, Men of uh, different, say, religious heritages, uh, as well, that were trying to find some common ground of masculinity. So they couldn't look to Christianity because what if a man isn't Christian or what if a man is atheist? You know, they couldn't look. They right. couldn't look to necessarily racial. You know, because there's so much, so much to bridge there anyway. So where, yeah. where can we go to look at what it means to be a man in a universal sense, in a way that everyone will accept and that no one will say, well, that's not my heritage. So they went back to myths and fables, right? That were older than older than many religions, or older than many uh, what we what understand as racial divides today, or ethnic divides, or national divides. Stuff into the deep past, and so that's where the term mythopoetic came from. They looked at myths and poems, and one of the oldest is called Iron John, and the uh, the book Iron John is Robert Bly reinterpreting the ancient, I think it's a Grimm's fairy tale or something like that, ancient myth of Iron John to say what it has to teach about male psychology. And so they would look to stories like that, which used to be instructive about psychology in a tribal sense. And so those stories used to get told and the elders and and the men and the boys would hear the stories and come to understand themselves through the stories. And so, the mythopoetic men's movement resurfaced many of those stories for the men at the time and retold them and said, this is how it applies to our, to our lives. So, to, to bring it full circle back to Iron John, the reason why that started what I believe is a cultural wave is it was the first time in history, I think, um, that men started looking within themselves collectively for answers because we lived in a survival mode for thousands of years, where it's like if you have yeah. an answer, you look outside yourself. We were in a place of prosperity, so where do we find answers? We look inside ourselves, and so men have been.
0: Plus, before, sorry, I was going to say plus before they didn't have to because they men were respected and needed and wanted, and there wasn't there wasn't a war on masculinity yet. That's right. So, well, there, prior to this time so, that you're describing, there so. wasn't
1: there wasn't a cultural war on masculinity. But I think I could make a case that the war on masculinity actually began with the Industrial Revolution. It just took place through physical means. So the Industrial Revolution, the Civil War, World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two. Um, you know, then into into Vietnam and and Korea. And industrialization as well. These were all the physical war on men, and then the 1960s and 70s is shifted to a cultural war on men. So after men had been broken down through successive generations of war deprivation, they've been broken down physically. Then the assault began on them. Um, I guess culturally, and so they they spent generations weakening men. Like the best, like I think I read something that said after World War One and World War Two like Europe, the, the population of males in Europe got like two or three inches shorter on average because all the tallest, yeah, strongest yeah. men were all, they all died in war. Yeah. Right. So it's, so the, there was a, mm-hmm. there was a physical assault on men's bodies, you know, up until the 1950s and the 1960s, and then started the cultural assault. And so that's what we've been living under for the past 60 years. So the war on men has been going on for a hundred and a hundred plus years. Um, and, you know, we're riding the leading edge of the thing that's going to end that.
0: You're hopeful then. I'm certain. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I'm, I'm, I, that wasn't on my list to ask you. I just thought of it and it's important because I get asked this a lot and people are surprised because things are, they have reached this, I don't know, I think breaking point and I feel like it can only go in one direction. And to me, and I'm a optimist, Mm. um, so I love hearing from somebody who's in this space, but who's not getting bogged down with all the negativity and who is quote unquote certain, as you just said that it will happen. Mm-hmm. This great reconciliation as opposed to the end of the world, let's say well, or the end of civilization. Right.
1: Well, it's either it's either great reset or great reconciliation. I'm betting on great reconciliation. Yeah. Well, here's, yeah. here's the cool thing. So we, you and I, or whoever listening can spend our entire lives being, having the lies of culture driven into our minds and hearts, right? We can live that way, mm-hmm. but all it takes is the right bit of information at the right time to undo all of it in a day and a night, and it all comes flying off. Now, what does that say about the power of the human spirit that we can be lied to? We can be poisoned. You know, we can be beaten down by every, every mechanism in our society, but all it takes is just the right word of truth spoken to us, and we transform totally overnight. The human spirit dominates, wins, always. And it's just about getting more truth to more people, and that will be proven. That's the truth in my life, and I know that's the truth that you've seen in your life many
0: times over. Amen. Amen. Awesome. I think that's a great place to end it, Will, because it's so positive. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm I'm so glad. This was great talking to you. Just really, really awesome. And I know people are going to love it and I can't wait to get it out. And um, good luck with everything you're doing. I know we're going to talk again for sure. Oh, yeah. So um, we'll uh, see you sooner rather than later. I would like that very much, Suzanne.
1: Please come on my podcast and we'll see if we can
0: talk for four hours. Oh my God. I'll have to rev myself up for that. Clear my calendar and mentally prepare to talk for four hours. But I bet we could do I it. We could do it. Awesome. That we could. Okay, well, you take care. You too. Thanks, Suzanne. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Banker Show. Before you leave us, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review at Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. If you've done that already, or if you can't leave a review on your podcast player for some reason, please consider sharing the show with a friend or a family member. Word of mouth is the primary way we get the word out about the Suzanne Banker Show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.